This episode is sponsored by the human rights team at Lee Day. Hello and welcome to the Better Human podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights and this podcast is all about human rights. The Better Human podcast is very kindly supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB law and undergraduate course taught in London. Applications are now open. To learn more, visit gold.ac.uk forward slash law. If you want to support the podcast, you can donate to our Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash better human. And if you can give a couple of pounds a month, that would be hugely appreciated and helps pay for the production and research that goes into each and every episode of this podcast. Today, I'm joined by Philip Leach and Joanna Evans, both from the European Human Rights Advocacy Centre, that's ERAC, based at Middlesex University. Philip Leach is a professor of human rights law at Middlesex and a qualified solicitor. He directs ERAC, part of the School of Law at the Middlesex University. He has extensive experience representing applicants before the European Court of Human Rights, particularly against Russia and other former Soviet states, as well as the UK and Turkey. He researches and publishes widely in the field of international human rights law, and he was awarded the Human Rights Lawyer of the Year at the Law Society 2015. Joanna Evans is a barrister who combines private practice with her role as the legal director of ERAC and has particular expertise in criminal justice issues and human rights violations arising from armed conflicts. She's got extensive litigation experience at domestic level and before the European Court of Human Rights and has also practiced in the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda and the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. And we're going to have a conversation about international human rights. What is it that people do when they say they practice in international human rights law from the UK? What difference can they make? When they win a case, does it actually get implemented? Um, Is it a difficult, is it a distressing area when you're dealing with these extremely complicated and in many ways miserable cases of persecution and in many cases death? If you want to get in touch with the podcast, you can email me at adam at betterhumanpodcast.com. Phil and Joanna, it's really great to have you on the podcast. Um, I, was, I, was, I was keen to have you on um, ever since I visited the European Human Rights Advocacy Centre, which we're going to refer to as ERAC um, from now on. But we might go back and just remind people what that acronym means. Um, but I visited, I, I think a couple of years ago yes, now, and, and, yes. and came over to, in, you, in this amazing sort of old, reconverted, 500-year-old um, building in Hendon. In Hendon, which is surprising, isn't it? For it's, it's surprising. It's sort of, you, you, it's, it's a beautiful bit of Hendon, and it's a beautiful building, and it has these sort of low beams. And you go inside, and then, in, and it's part of the University of, of Middlesex, which is, which has a sort of very varying architecture. And you walk in and inside there's this, this sort of nerve center of strategic human rights, international litigation, um, which is absolutely buzzing. Um, and I was really quite amazed at, at what was going on in there. Um, can you, do you want to just give a quick introduction to Phil to what ERAC does? Yes, certainly. And it's a great, great pleasure to be here, Adam. We, we take human rights cases at the international level, and we try to do that in a way that's strategic. I'll explain that in a moment. And we cover uh, five countries that used to be part of the former Soviet Union, Russia and Ukraine, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia. 
And the way we do the litigation is through close mentoring with non-governmental organizations, NGOs, human rights NGOs on the ground in those countries. So we're not just taking the cases, we're always working very closely with with those NGOs, sometimes with private lawyers in some of the countries where the NGOs have been shut down, but we're working to support them to bring those cases. And it's a, so it's a, a collaboration uh, with local experts, experts in the laws of those countries and in the context of those countries. And what we bring to, to that is, uh, is international law expertise and expertise in the, in the practice of the international courts. It's probably also worth saying something about the, the, the range of cases that we cover because we do cover a very broad range of rights, uh, but it is possible to say that we you know, we've have certain fo- areas of focus, one of which has been, sadly, has been conf- armed conflict uh, because uh, conflict has, has still ravaged that region uh, since, since the breakup of the, of the Soviet Empire in, in, the late, in, in the late 80s, early 90s. And so quite a lot of cases uh, have arisen from different forms of conflict. We're seeing, of course, the conflict in eastern Ukraine now, Russian occupation of Crimea at the moment. But some of the conflicts go back uh, many, many years, back into the 90s. So that's one area of focus. But we have a a number of other areas. We We do an awful lot of work with human rights defenders themselves. So people in these countries, the lawyers, the NGOs, the activists, who are themselves trying to bring the fight by, by challenging uh, abuse, human rights abuses, and they become the victims themselves. So we end up taking a lot of cases uh, with them. But we're also doing work on uh, violence against women and domestic violence, protest rights, rights to protect the uh, LGBT community, freedom of expression, a whole, a whole range of areas. When you say that you are litigating, you're bringing cases in international human rights courts what is the or are the courts that you're using and, and, and can if you could just give a kind of potted description of where what what they are and where they come from yes the the international human rights system is really based on states consent states coming to 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 a group to say we're going to sign up to these human rights standards by by signing treaties so it's a consensual process, which I think is very important to, to, to remember. So they sign treaties that say we're going to uphold and protect human rights standards. And the system then has created a whole series of different ways in which those rights are actually upheld, one of which is the international court system. We use the, the European Court of Human Rights a lot, but we also use some of the UN mechanisms, the Human Rights Committee, the Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, and so on. And there are, so there are, there, are, there are mechanisms at both the international level through the auspices of the United Nations, and then there are mechanisms at the regional level for us in Europe, but there are also, there's a human rights system covering the continent of Africa, a system covering the Americas, for example. And I think the other, other important thing to say is that the, the, the mechanisms have, have, have different, take different forms. So we're going to be probably talking about courts a lot uh, uh, today, but there are also a number of other ways in which these bodies I- uphold and enforce uh, human rights standards. So one of them is, there's a, uh, is the Committee on Torture in Europe, and there's an equivalent at the UN at the international level, and that, it, that committee has the right to go into a country 
and, it, and to turn up at any police station, any prison, any psychiatric hospital, any time of the day or night, and to go in and see what's happening, talk to detainees, talk to those in charge, and then they will then write a, a report about what they've seen about the state of prison conditions, which is still, sadly, a, a huge problem in many parts of Europe. So that's a, another mechanism as well as, uh, as the court process. So, so, there, so there are UN officials in UN uniforms who, who, who they, turn they, up with a kind of clipboard and say hello we're from the united nations and we want to inspect your prison or police cell in effect i mean they're independent experts uh, and but they have once the state has again it's this matter of consent once the state has signed up to the treaty it allows it allow them to come they come to for come to london come to a police station turn up at, at three in the morning and say we want to come in and we want to talk to this person who we know is in the cell here and they have that absolute right because the state has consented to that by signing the treaty and, and, and which states across Europe have signed up to that treaty or well, have for, not, maybe have not signed up to that well, treaty? Well, for, for Europe, it's, it's, very, it's very strong now. The main treaty is the European, the main civil and political rights treaty is the European Convention on Human Rights. That's the, that's the basis of the law that we have here in the UK through the Human Rights Act. But we have to, really important to remember that there are 47 countries that are part of that European human rights system, cover, covering right across Europe through to, to, to most of the former Soviet states, which is the, the area that, that we work. And so the court has to deal with thousands of cases from 47 countries. Uh, and one of the great problems of the system is the sheer weight of numbers. There are currently 60,000 cases from those 47 countries pending at the court, and that's, that does create all sorts of problems, as you can imagine. Joanna, can we just pick up on the European Court of Human Rights? It's probably fair to say that most people have heard of the European Court of Human Rights. I think there's quite a bit of confusion about how that interacts with the European Union. Um, but how would an individual, say an individual in the UK or an individual in Georgia or Russia, mm. How would they access that court and, and why would they want to? Well, this is the beauty of the European Court of Human Rights and why we should protect it and uphold it and really cherish it because the, in theory, any individual in any of these states can fill in a form setting out what's happened to them, what they've tried to do already to address it within their own state and why they think their human rights have been violated. And over the course of the court's history, there have been numerous examples of um, the court um, dealing with cases from individuals who, who initially had no legal representation to, to establish incredibly important landmark rights for those individuals, which then would have affected um, the entirety of the European Court of Human Rights jurisdiction. So it, it's actually very simple. The difficulty is that the numbers of cases have obviously increased over the years. Um, resources are, are relatively limited and the issues are incredibly important. So there's now a backlog of cases uh, and people sometimes have to wait very many years. But what they wait for is something which for some people it is not open to them in their own countries. So the cases that Iraq started with were, were cases from Chechnya arising from the conflicts which occurred there, which were some of the most egregious human rights you could imagine. Um, people whose relatives were disappeared in the dead of night, who are still now, have never been found, um, their fates never established. People tortured in, in, in quite appalling manners, um, people with their ears cut off, uh, one example that has always stayed with me from uh, one of those cases, aerial bombardment of civilians. And 
what was striking about those cases is that the Chechen population were given to understand that they didn't have rights. They weren't able to um, avail themselves of the rights that were available to other Russian citizens. So taking those cases to the European Court of Human Rights on behalf of a population that had been told and given a message for some time that there there is nobody to speak for you, in some ways it is... Um, a masterclass of why the court is necessary and what it represents for some of the most vulnerable people and populations within that region. And and just before we dive into those particular cases, we're talking about individuals with rights. What what are the rights, the kinds of rights that they have um, through the European Convention? Well, you'd start with the right to life, um, which many of our cases have focused on because the right to life uh, hasn't been upheld in in many of the states that we've been working in over the years. You then have the right for freedom from torture, um, moving on to some of the more um, used rights rather than the rarer ones, um, freedom from arbitrary detention, the right to a fair trial, um, the right to your own private life, um, the right for freedom of... um, expression, freedom of assembly, um, and the right to be free from discrimination, probably some of the most key rights which are protected and all of which we've litigated over the years. So let's go back to Chechnya. What's the background to that? Why, why did that become such a flashpoint for for rights and for Iraq to get involved in the international human rights litigation scene? Well, the Chechen conflict, I'm sure uh, uh, people will remember, was um, a particularly bloody conflict um, that um, stretched over many years and caused many casualties. Um, In terms of why it was a particular problem from a human rights perspective, um, as I've already said, uh, uh, Russia failed to recognize or, or approach the situation in any way which was compatible with human rights protections. So by way of example, um, uh, a small village where it was felt that some Chechen fighters might be hiding, um, but equally there were large number of civilians and on a particular occasion a, a humanitarian, humanitarian corridor was set up to bring the civilians out of this village was bombed um, from the air um, with large-scale weaponry without any warning, uh, without any contingency plans, without any disclosure, without any attempt to try and protect the civilians involved. So there was no, there was no, it was approached as a full-scale war in that sense. There was no attempt to um, delineate the protections of civilians from the um, approach which might be taken towards those who are in combat. And resulting from that, there were these wide-scale violations for which there was no redress in Russia at all. The the courts in that region effectively had come to a standstill in any meaningful way, and people were unable to get any information about what had happened to their brothers, their fathers. It wasn't simply a matter of trying to seek human rights redress. It was individuals saying, my family member has disappeared and we know what happens to people who disappear in this region. We want to try and get them back. And nothing was functioning at all on even the most basic level. So the importance of the court and the human rights protections at European level in that situation was that it was able, from an overarching point of view, to come in and say, actually, regardless of the fact that a war was going on, regardless of the fact that Russia felt there should be um, 
none of these rights afforded to these individuals. In fact, um, they were upheld in the long run at the court. And indeed, in terms of strategic approach to these cases, um, we have won every single one of the cases we've taken from the Chechen conflict before the European Court of Human Rights. And how many are, roughly have you taken? I think we're in the 80s now, is that right? Or 80s with a judgment. And Russia has paid compensation in every single one of those cases. Um, but what Russia hasn't done, for instance, in the disappearance cases, is to effect an investigation to allow the families to find out what's happened to their missing family member, which is what most people want to know. And astonishingly, when we interviewed those individuals relatively recently, many of them still believe 15 years on that their sons or husbands or, or brothers or whatever it might be were still alive somewhere and suffering and, and needed their help, which gives an indication for you of how people suffer um, in that a knowing state for so long and, that, and it's been referred to as a type of torture in itself to the relatives. And so realizing after having tried to engage for some time that Russia was not going to affect any kind of investigation that would bring answers to these people, even in terms of the remains of bodies, we went on from a strategic standpoint and trying to represent our applicants uh, as best we could to approach the matter um, at the UN level. And so we've gone to the working group um, of the UN on enforced um, and involuntary disappearances to take their cases there. Um, and we've also continued to engage with the implementation side of the European Court of Human Rights in terms of seeking um, humanitarian resolution, meaning the, the exclamation of, of graves and the um, establishment of the identity of remains, which are now obviously very old um, in the ground and which need to be identified through modern science methods so that these families can have closure of these terrible events. Phil, um, the, when you start in 2003 with the centre mm. and, and you've got this, this raging conflict, I guess mm. the, the, the che that, that bit of the Chechen conflict started in 99 ended about 10 years later and still kind of going on in in bits and pieces mm, today mm. and it's an ancient conflict that's been going on in, in in certain forms for hundreds of years you've got this conflict you're in the uk you've got not that long before the end of the cold war um where the, the eastern europe is i'm guessing the justice systems are not particularly um high quality in terms of rule of law how do you get involved in that and how do you know that the things that you're going to do and the approach you're going to take is going to make any kind of difference? Well, at the heart of what we did then and what we've always done since then is, is we're, we're working with local NGOs on the ground. We're responding to requests for help and advice and support. So at the time, right at the beginning, it was the Russian NGO Memorial who, who came to us um, so Russia had just joined the Council of Europe in 1998, uh, and, there, so there, and there wasn't a, a body of human rights lawyers in Russia who were, familiar, as you would expect, weren't familiar with the European court system. So, so just just bef before that, mm. so during communist times mm. um, and the and the USSR, which yeah. ended in the late 80s, what was what kind of connection did Russia have to human rights, if any? Well, it wasn't possible to do anything at, at the international level. This is what was revolutionary. Suddenly, uh, after they joined the Council of Europe, signed the European Convention on Human Rights, it was possible for any individual to take 
their government to to the European Court of Human Rights. It's, it's, it's still a remarkable uh, right and a, and, a, and a process. And, and certainly for international law, it was un, of course it was unknown. It was international law used to be about relationships, relationships between states, but it became through the European Court process and and, and similar uh, international human rights systems. It also became about individual rights, the fact that um, any of us can, can challenge our governments at the court and get a binding judgment, a judgment that's binding international law that governments have to, have to comply with. And, that's and what do you mean by binding in, in that context? What happens if a state that's signed up to the European Convention, like Russia, using that example, they're signed up, there's a case against them, what, why do they have to, to do what the court says? They, simply because the treaty says that they have to, and they've signed the treaty. Again, it's back to this issue of consent. Uh, they've, they've, they've agreed to, to uphold the rights. Uh, the European Court will look at these, these individual cases and will come, come to a decision. They're, they're incredibly important, not just for the, the, the decision as to, as to who was liable, but also just a f- the basis of fact-finding is so important because so, so often these cases haven't been proper, properly the subject of fact-finding finding in uh, at the national level through the national courts the national courts have failed people and the european court of human rights the first job it does is is makes an objective independent assessment of what has happened so important in chechnya so important in, in all our all, all our cases before it then goes on to decide well who was responsible and then what kind of redress uh, can be offered which is certainly compensation and governments governments pay the russian government pay the other governments that we that we uh, the states the other states that we we work they pay uh, what's more even more difficult but also very very interesting is what else the court can order in terms of redress beyond ordering compensation uh, and one of the uh, the, I think one of the most important things is, is th- increasingly the court can require changes in law, changes in practice. And that's where you get into this idea of, of genuinely strategic litigation, litigation that will uh, not just provide redress for the people you're representing, which is so important, but also further than that, it will uh, say that there's a uh, a systemic, a wider systemic problem, a problem that affects maybe hundreds, thousands of other people, uh, and there, there may be a, a, a that may be caused by a state practice or a policy or a law. And if that's right, then the 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 implications of the judgment are, the, are the, that 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 policy or that practice or that law will have to be changed. And that is what certainly these some of these judgments lead to. Um, not always, because there is a problem about implementation, as Joe was mentioning earlier. But uh, it certainly, uh, in some cases, leads directly to uh, these significant changes. So let's um, let's hold off on implementation. We'll come back to mm. that. But let's can we talk about a couple of examples of cases that you've brought um, for individual clients or organisations that have you think are good examples of international human rights law working. Do you want to start, Joe, with... With Edson Yeah, sure. Um, well, as I, I'm sure you're aware, that, um, across the globe, in fact, but it, it, certainly in, our, in the region that we work in, um, there's a very big problem in terms of protection of women's rights. Um, there's a problem in terms of violence against women, sexual, physical, and psychological violence, and there's particularly a problem 
in relation to domestic violence and the way in which it's um, dealt with or not dealt with, um, in fact, which is more likely to be the case. Um, and we, um, in fact, inherited a case um, from Georgia, um, which is referred to as X and Y against Georgia, from the previous um, human rights organization, Interrights, that had initially started this very important case, um, and sadly no longer with us, and we, and we took it over. And it turned out to be an extremely important case in terms of protections for women um, in Georgia, which hopefully in time will have a knock-on effect across the region. Um, the applicants in that case were a mother and daughter who had... Um, been repeatedly abused um, by the, their father and husband, respectively, over the years, um, uh, to quite a high degree. And the mother had complained to the local authorities, to the police, on, on numerous occasions, but on no single occasion had any criminal investigation um, actually been been opened. And this is something we see commonly across our region um, when women make complaints to the police of, of serious violence or, um, or abusive behavior against them. Um, the police often react in terms of um, trying to bring about a reconciliation between the parties, um, asking the perpetrator, for instance, to sign a declaration saying that um, he, he would never be um, violent or abusive again, often talking to the neighbors, asking the neighbor's opinion, is this man, is, is this man a good chap, uh, equivalent in the um, countries that, the, um, that this is happening in, or, or various other means of really anything apart from opening a criminal investigation. After some time, this came through the Georgian courts and um, comments were made along the way from one Georgian judge um, along the lines of a, a father's entitlement uh, as to how he could treat um, his daughter. And it really gave a flavor of the way in, in which women's rights were, were, were treated with quite flagrant disregard. Equally, it, the case showed that there, were no, there was no legal framework in place uh, at the time to provide for some of the things that we're more familiar with in this country, albeit it has to be said now under threat as well because of certain um, policies which have been fought forward, such as um, shelters for women, um, legal aid for protections for um, women in these kind of situations and protection orders, anything of that nature which might have assisted. Anyway, to cut a long story short, this case eventually um, made its way before the Committee uh, for the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, uh, the UN Committee, um, and uh, a resounding judgment um, was issued um, in favour of the applicants by that committee. And the committee works very differently from the European Court of Human Rights and and tackles problems in in quite a different way. But the judge, the effect of the judgment in terms was to expose and to set out the various deficiencies in the way in which um, systemic um, domestic violence had been treated um, and, and not investigated properly um, within the system. Following that judgment, um, Georgia um, ratified the Istanbul Convention. So the Istanbul Protocol or the Istanbul Convention is the Council of Europe Convention on Preventing and Combating Violence Against Women and Domestic Violence. And Georgia also brought into play, um, uh, legislated to, to, to bring into force um, a body which could provide compensation for individuals who had gone to a UN body and had a successful judgment. And the entire, in fact, um, domestic legislation was um, 
uh, was reworked in order to provide some of the protections that were necessary. Now, some of this, it must, it's fair to say, was already um, in the offing within Georgia and had been building up for some time um, at the behest of some um, very talented lawyers and activists in that region. But, and this is why I think it, it's important to always look at things from a holistic um, standpoint, the, the, that kind of work on the ground together with the judgment from an international body f f in respect of which Georgia obviously didn't want to fall foul and felt um, quite strongly against having done so. Just thinking about the, the reaction of the Georgian government, I think we see here, mm. although we have, a, we have quite a well-developed domestic local human rights compliance system, I think it's probably fair to say, with lots, with lots of nickels around the edges. But when the government, when the UN says something about the UK social services or mm. housing or whatever, or the European court, what you often get now here is is quite a sort of lashing back from the government. Or the, how dare they say that about us? Mm. You know, these international in terms of judges, special rapporteur or, or, or special rapporteurs or, or the European court. But do you, do you think, in your experience, is that different in places like Georgia? Do the government actually want to comply with international standards? Do they feel embarrassed? if the international bodies are criticizing them? Well, Georgia is a very interesting example. I, uh, my, my view is that in the countries that we work with uh, um, for some time, Georgia has been the one which very much most wanted to comply with international standards. Um, and yes, uh, our experiences were always very uncomfortable with this judgment. Um, in fact, one of the applicants, Cindy, was called in at one stage and told by... Um, an official, you've brought shame on your country for bringing this this case. But uh, I, I don't think that's fair to say that that ref reflects the entirety of the Georgia administration, but it's an interesting insight to how these things could be viewed. Now, that's distinct from Russia, which um, I, I, I think one could fairly say do, does not approach the, um, the decisions of international courts with quite the same degree of care. But nonetheless, it... It is a constant source of fascination to me that that Russia doesn't flagrantly um, abuse judgments from the the courts that we've been working with. Um, when we're when we're dealing with implementation, for instance, um, Russia will almost always claim to have implemented a case or put forward some some argument as to why it couldn't do so. It's very different, for instance, from the stance that America used to take in relation to international bodies and saying we don't recognise you, we're not interested, we're we're not prepared to do anything um, that you're asking us to do. Even Russia, with its, um, if I put it generously. Um, controversial um, stance on international law um, across a number of realms that we've seen um, still tries to look as if it's complying with these judgments and, and that I find particularly interesting. The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting I would really appreciate if you consider giving just three dollars a month that's just over two pounds via our Patreon, that's patreon.com forward slash better human. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable and I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. I definitely want to talk more about Russia because you're coming into contact with Russia quite a lot, especially in, in the Chechen cases and other cases. Phil, can you give an example where you've had a case against Russia um, you know, and talk about it from, from how it came to you 
and what effect it's had and also how Russia responded and, and, and you know, picking up on that was the psychology of how, um, how it treats these international bodies. Well, one of the cases that we could talk about is, is a, a case about surveillance. Uh, we represented a journalist publisher, Roman Zakharov, who, who was based in St. Petersburg and wanted to challenge the laws on surveillance. Uh, and the laws in Russia allowed the security services, the FSB, to, uh, to essentially tap the f mobile phones of people in Russia uh, directly. Uh, the laws required mobile phone operators to allow this direct uh, surveillance uh, without necessarily judicial oversight. Um, and he wanted to, to challenge that situation. So he, we took a case to the, to the European Court that went to the, the Grand Chamber, the largest composition of the court. And I think why it's particularly interesting is, is that it, it illustrates the way in which you can use these processes to challenge the laws themselves. And the, uh, the court looked at uh, this law, it looked at all the uh, aspects of the way in which the law regulated or failed to regulate how this surveillance occurred in, in Russia from uh, you know, the very start of the process, how do you decide who can you put under surveillance in this way? Uh, if you do monitor the phones, what do you do with the material? How long do you keep it? When do you destroy it? Uh, how do you challenge it? Who has oversight over it? And it's um, a judgment that, that drove a coach and horses through the Russian domestic law. There were so many problems with the law uh, that uh, it's, it's a very extensive judgment that set a standard that's been used really globally since then. Uh, it's been used in the courts here in the UK. We've seen a lot of challenges to, to uh, wider forms of surveillance, mass surveillance, and the Zakharov case has been used in that context. Now, it shows both, I think, the strengths and the weaknesses of the system in one go. One go. Uh, strengths, because as I've just said, the, the court was very clear and, uh, in saying that the Russian law was, was breached the European Convention on Human Rights. Um, and setting a standard, and yet, what have we seen in Russia since then? This was ju judgment that came out a, a few years ago. There's been no change to the laws, which is what should have happened. In fact, the laws have got, got even worse. So it shows um, the, 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 the real problems of implementation. Uh, so it shows both the strengths and the weaknesses of, of the system that we have. So let, let's go back to implementation. Joanna was talking about Russia, the surprise that Russia even engages um, with this process. And I have to say, I think most people would be surprised because, you know, we see the, the Vladimir Putin of the news who is constantly railing against international institutions like the EU um, or, or NATO. Why do they bother at all engaging? Why do they remain members of the Council of Europe? Why do they allow this pro these processes to happen? And when they do, what, 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 why do they? Why are they implementing them? Where they are implementing them? I think it's a really interesting question as to why states, uh, uh, especially states like Russia, states like Azerbaijan. We haven't talked about Azerbaijan much yet, but the the regime there is a very repressive autocratic regime. 
why do they why do they still engage? It's a very interesting question, and I think there are probably a number of different answers to that for for different countries and different times. Certainly, being part of uh, of the community, international community of states that is recognised as as uh, trying or implement trying to implement human rights is is very important. And so, you you talk to officials in countries like Georgia. There is a high level uh, we found of respect for. The Council of Europe for these standards and the, and the need to the need to com- comply and to be seen to comply to comply with it. So, some, so is it some of it coming from the populations rather than the governments? Cer- certainly, I mean that that's al- also true. I mean the numbers of cases that are being taken from from these countries. There are several thousand cases pending against Russia at the moment. Several thousand pending against Ukraine at the European Court of Human Rights. So the, there is. There is a, a, a belief in, in the system and uh, in the international human rights system. And, uh, and, and some of that, I think, is, is entirely justified, as we've been explaining, this ability to, to take cases that lead to judgments that are bind, you know, binding against the state. And yet, also, we have the problems of implementation. And so uh, we have to try to manage expectations as, as well. We can, the European Court is doing a remarkable job in some of these really difficult situations, cutting through, finding violations, and then what happens afterwards, the state's response is, is too often uh, very inadequate. And that's where more, much more work needs to be done, uh, where much more work needs to be done at the national level. Unless you have, you know, you, unless you have governments and members of parliament and the media and civil society coming together on an issue, things won't change. You know, it's, it's all very well having, having a decision at the international level. That's often actually really just the start of, of, a, of a process of change. You need real engagement at the, at the national level, people to be concerned and to, and to know about the decisions and to know what it means and to know what, uh, what should be done to change, to change the law and practice. Being based in the UK, do you find, does the UK government help with, and, and the Foreign Office help with implementation of judgments? Does it, does it get involved or is it, are you on your own? Well, the, the implementation process is largely dealt with by the Department for the Execution of Judgments and the Committee of Ministers, which is made up of representatives from the member states. And, uh, and Britain has, has a representative on that body, as does all the other states. What tends to happen is that different states um, develop an interest in different cases. Um, so, for instance, on the Chechen disappearance cases, over the years, different states have taken a lead in trying to find ways forward in dealing with what's quite an intractable problem to a certain extent. But then the diplomats also change because they're on a rotating basis. So it may depend on the state interest or it may depend on an individual basis. But to answer your initial question, um, the, the UK, um, it, it t- I think, takes its role very seriously in, in terms of implementation of judgment, but was also very conscious for some years that the UK itself wasn't implementing um, a judgment of the court. Um, and so there's always a delicate balance to be had in, in terms of the politics of what happens post-judgment in the implementation process. And for lawyers, it's very frustrating 
dealing with the implementation process where the rules suddenly become a lot harder to grapple with because they're political rather than legal rules. There's, there's a problem in the in the system, Adam, that I think we we do need to raise and, and, and grapple with because these, so the European Court comes up with, with judgments, it makes its assessment, uh, and then it goes to the Committee of Ministers, as Joe was explaining on that. So that's states. Who are uh, the Committee of Ministers? They are st- state officials, uh, and they come together to look at, at judgments and, and to supervise their implementation. So the they, they will look at governments will have to explain this is what we've done in response to this judgment this is um, and and the committee ministers that will then assess that but ultimately the problem is of course you have governments assessing the record of other governments um, it's been described by some one person has described it as the foxes guarding the foxes uh, you've to what extent are, are governments like the UK like, or any of the other governments going to be willing to point the finger at a state that's failing to comply like Russia when they know that at some point the finger will be pointed back at them. Uh, it's a diplomatic process in relation to legally binding judgments. And that, um, so, so when the state is willing to comply, it works. And there can be a process, and there are lots of examples when it does work. The sorts of cases that we often deal with are much more problematic. There's much more resistance. And that's when it really doesn't work. And uh, the judgments sit there. The committee ministers doesn't do enough. It doesn't have you know, san- it has an ability to sanction states, uh, and you have states unwilling to really put any pressure uh, that is a, that is effective. So there is a problem in, in in the system in terms of how these decisions are implemented. Because it comes down to international politics and, and diplomacy. It, it does. I mean, and- to what extent are countries going to be willing to take on Russia, given its geopolitical power in the, in the world? Uh, are they going to be more willing to take on a country like Azerbaijan, much smaller, but it, but is also, in human rights terms, is very re- regressive at the, in recent years. It's been locking up human rights defenders, uh, barring barring lawyers. Yeah, as Joe said, raiding the LGBT community in in in, in Baku, uh, imprisoning them, ill-treating them. Uh, to what extent are, are, are other countries going to be willing to to to, uh, to to get them to knuckle down? And it's it's a it's a problematic process that that a number of people have said for a long time has to be changed. But this is this is the problem of the basis of the system, which is about states' consent. It's about it's based on, as I said at the right at the beginning, about international treaties, states coming together and agreeing. They uh, they, they they hold the ring. Uh, what we need to do somehow is to bring in. I think bring in civil society in, in all its various forms to have, have a stronger role in, in these systems. Well, I mean, the reason people comply with court orders in a domestic court ultimately is because at the end of the court order is a, a power of compulsion. So the courts can bring in the bailiffs or the or the police and they can send people to prison if they don't comply with the court order. And, and in the international system, you just don't have... You can't. The Council of Europe can't send in the troops. Um, we'd hope they wouldn't send in the troops to enforce judgment. So, what what realistically is the what realistically is the is the answer there? Because you can't. I mean, it's not going to be the troops. No, I mean, there's been a number of different suggestions made. What one of which is is a sort of a, a, a greater if you like, a greater judicialization at that stage. So you bring the issues back to the court. And that is possible now. There is a new process 
of infringement proceedings at the European Court where, where the Committee of Ministers, so the states recognise that a state hasn't complied with the judgment, it can refer the case back to the court. It's only done it once in relation to an, uh, Azerbaijan, to an activist politician, blogger who was imprisoned and uh, the Committee of Ministers were calling for his release and the Azerbaijan refused to release him. So they used this new mechanism. But uh, more broadly, there have been other calls for uh, for the process to come back to the court in some way. Um, and I mean, I come back to the fact that the, the, I can, I have every uh, faith in what the court does, acting as an independent, objective international body. Um, and it's much more problematic when it gets to the committee le ministers level. If you look across at uh, other systems in the inter-American system, so the system for the whole of the Americas, uh, the court there is much more involved with implementation. Uh, not to say that it's any, the implementation is issues there are any easier. Of course, they're not. There are many, many huge problems. But th they have made strides in recent years because I, th I think because the court, so this independent objective body, has the role of pushing forward implementation. It will hold hearings on implementation. So it'll get government back to explain themselves what have you done why haven't you done this and that could be part of uh, of uh, of a stronger european system i mean it is a bit weird isn't it that it goes to it doesn't it, it doesn't stay with the court because you think in the uk if you don't comply with the court order it wouldn't go to some group of politicians to decide what to do about it no matter what the case it would always stay with the court and the court decides on what what sanctions to trigger next um, and and an, an, another thought I had was, w w it, might it be better if the fines were bigger? You know, at, at the risk of a hundred million euro fine might focus minds. I think it depends on the state. Um, and in some senses, I think it's double-edged. For, for instance, at present, Russia is ordered to compensate around 60,000 euros for every disappeared person. I mean, I, I suspect there are very few people in the world that would think 60,000 would compensate them for the um the loss of their loved one um but i don't think it would stop russia taking the steps it took e even if that amount was significantly higher we have cases such as the ucos case which was enormous in, in its financial um remedy against russia and um, so ucos was an oil company um, that had, I think it was dissolved as a company, and the and the the, the head of the company was was put in prison, and it was a, billions of euros from from memory that that case. I, I may be mm. completely misremembering. No, it was all, very. All I, I can't give you the specific figure, but I, I remember that distinctly because um, of the very big disparity between the amount of money that was being awarded in terms of a, a business case as opposed to um, the people we represent who, who have nothing and have lost nothing often, um, or, or certainly a very a big disparity. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't seem to me that money is what it's about for for many of the countries that we deal with. Certainly not for certainly not for Russia. Maybe for some of the smaller states. Um, but the, but the real issue is political will, um, and uh, it's political will not just of the, the individual countries concerned, it's political will across the whole of the um, body of countries that are signed up to this, as Phil has already mentioned, because it, 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 it's the coherency and the, um, the coming together of a collective that gives it its strength. And so if we were able to, or if there were steps able to be taken to strengthen the implementation side of things to such an extent that it was simply was unacceptable to keep disregarding court judgments for certain states um 
then obviously that would be a very powerful step to take. But we have to reflect that um, states don't often observe international law outside of the court system in any event. So it's not a problem that's unique to the court. I think it's 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 also important to remember that we can, you know we can and do make you know significant strides even in sometimes in the most difficult situations and that you know despite the problems that Joe and I have talked about about state compliance and the, these you know these some of these countries it's, they're probably the most difficult issues that, that the, across Europe um, despite those problems people are winning cases um, I mean. Just let's turn to Azerbaijan for a moment, where, say, the, the, the very repressive regime there has been locking up human rights defenders, uh, has been disbarring lawyers, has been shutting down the NGOs. And we've taken a series of cases uh, for or people we used to work with representing others. We've been, in recent years, we've been representing them. Um, and it's, it's a very difficult, very, very difficult climate, in many ways worse than the human rights situation in, in Russia for human rights defenders. And yet, even there, um, there, is, there is some progress. It's, it's been very clear to us that just take the process of taking these cases for these people who are in prison and bringing, bringing, making sure that they had proper medical care in prison, that kind of issue, uh, they've, they've, they've been released uh, after several years, um, and yet some of them are still subject to travel bans and so on. But even those processes now, some of the travel bans are being lifted. Uh, one of the well-known human rights defenders into Gamaliev, his, he, his office has been sealed up in Baku for, for years. It's just been unsealed. Um, so even in these really difficult situations, uh, it's sometimes it's about keeping going, taking more cases, uh, and discussing the cases that you are taking, raising awareness, and, and, and it's the a coming together within the Council of Europe of not just the court, but also the, the Secretary-General of the Council of Europe has weighed in, the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, the, so the, the body made up of, of national MPs, all coming together to put pressure you know, where it's needed. And can I just build on what Phil said when he mentioned about it, it's being a matter of keeping going um, and what the what the court can represent for people. It, it reminded me of a case we did for um, the mother of an investigative journalist who was disappeared and, and, and murdered after he was conducting investigations into police corruption. Um, and the reason I mention it is because the, the, the mother um, was um, constant in her efforts to um, try and obtain some justice at domestic level over many, many years and turning over every single stone. And then she came to us to take the case to Strasbourg. And in the course of taking the case to Strasbourg, she became diagnosed with cancer. And throughout that process, she kept engaging with us, giving statements and information and um, interviews over the phone in order to build up the evidence while she was, you know, she'd just come back from chemotherapy in some instances um, a few days previously previously um and and she she secured for me a solemn promise that that case would keep going um in any way that we were able to after her death and so the 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 potential hope and light that um finally even just um a judgment saying that yes this was wrong and what happened to your son was wrong and in violation of these rights at, at an international level for individuals represents something that that apparently um, for people it even moves on into the grave. Uh, and, and I think that's quite remarkable. I, I think we're, we're, we're moving to, from a cup half empty to a cup half full view of the international human rights system. That In, in many ways, it's, it, it is amazing that it works um, and it has its issues. But on the whole, there is this functioning system across 
hundreds of millions of people, including the former Soviet Union, which is has its enormous transition to democracy problems. But that is still working. Um, and just one question that I wanted to ask about individual cases. In the UK, if you bring a human rights case, it's, I mean, from my experience, it's extremely stressful. And it is, you know, from a mental health perspective, it can give rise to very significant issues. It takes a long time. But generally speaking, and thankfully, you're not. Your life isn't at risk. But I'm guessing for a lot of your clients, bringing a case can give rise to very significant risks of persecution or even um, being disappeared themselves. And how do you deal with that um, as individuals in the UK? Do you feel responsibility for those people? Do you do you worry about that? Is that something you just have to have as a sort of professional? You just have to sort of bank it professionally and get on with the job. I mean, you're certainly right. It is a it is and has been a a big issue. We've uh, you know a lot of our cases are about people who've been killed, or uh, and so we're representing the families uh, of those of those people. Um, but beyond that, um, there are certainly some cases. The Chechen cases in the early years, there were a whole series of threats brought against the the litigants, the families. And sometimes members of the other members of the family, other witnesses. And I remember going to Strasbourg at one stage to talk to the court about the problem, and to talk to the Commission of Human Rights. So there's a there's a big problem here. What do, what do we do about it? And, the, and of course, the problem with the court is anything you send to the court has to go to the other side. It's an adversarial process. But again, showing the, the sort of the, the the benefits of a holistic approach, the Commissioner for Human Rights, who has a more of a diplomatic um, role. Uh, in Europe, was able to say to us, well, if you send me information about what's going on, I can then use that. I don't have to disclose that when I go and talk to ministers in other countries, but I can use the information. So that's something we're able to do. So um, it's certainly been a feature of these cases. And I said earlier, more recently, the human rights defenders themselves being targeted and um, and some some very, very distressing circumstances. And I, I'm, I'm, one of the reasons why we set up um, was to um, to be at arm's length. We set up deliberately outside the countries. We deliberately did not set up offices in those countries, which would be, in, I think, you know, would have been targeted now by, for, the, for example, the foreign agents law in Russia. We may have been targeted had we had a base there. So we, I think we, we, we benefit from being at arm's length and we can help the NGOs that we work with who are under the real cosh, they get the real, I mean, we've had, you know, we've had colleagues who are, who've been killed, uh, certainly taken and threatened. Um, so they're under the cosh and we can help more by being, being uh, at an arm's length. But I have to say, I'm increasingly aware of, of this issue, even for us in sitting here in, in London and having to, we have to think as, as an organization about those issues, about the impact on, on mental health that you mentioned, Adam. Um, yeah, we have to deal with some pretty horrible stuff. If you know photographs of dismembered bodies and and you know statements from family members that describe some very distressing stuff. So we have to. I'm increasingly conscious of a need to look after our, our, our team. And not just I think not just the horrible subject matter of the cases. Uh, I think from a mental health perspective, to be litigating on cases such as this over more than a decade, to see in some senses only very incremental progress. It, is is wearing um and upsetting for anybody involved 
Um, but it's even more upsetting um, when outsiders then try to negate the validity of what's being done because I think for any of us who work in human rights, we know that um, even if the progress of the case is slow, what it represents for the individual who's had no representation and no voice and no rights upheld prior to that is momentous. And it's only really by the grain of sand approach of one case by one case that, that, that the progress can be made. How do you keep going with that attritional effect that these cases have on you? Well... <laughs> <laughs> Um, to give a glib answer, we actually have a very nice team, which is helpful. Um, I think all of us would probably say that at different stages in the work, um, we've been affected by it in a way which you know, means that we've needed to step back from it. Um, and to be with supportive colleagues at that time, uh, I think is important. Um, and I also think, you know, I always remember something which Phil said to me when I, I was um, very upset by some of our cases for a period, that actually you, you get rejuvenation often by the, the, the applicants we work with and the, and the lawyers that we work with in the region, who, as we've all rightly said, are in, in far more difficult situations than we are. And, you know, I can remember individual applicants I've, I've met in Moscow who, whose joy and relief was such, um, so immense to actually have representation and to have the prospect of a voice. Um, people who, uh, you know, who's as lawyers or, or activists that whose bravery is, 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 um, inspirational. And those, those things I think do, um, buoy you along the way. I think we have to also hold on to the to the positives as we try to do to see where there are there are gains they may be gradual it may take many years but still this remarkable process of of you and me any of us being able to take our government get a bind, legally binding judgment is is remarkable particularly in the context of of some of the former soviet states even in putin's russia that's possible and there will be some measure of redress and some measure of uh, of recognition despite the difficulties and, and I think we have to hold on to those to those positives and we get you know we get quite a lot of positives each year and we have to um, we have to remember those and build on those and what would be worse and far more depressing is not to be able to do anything at all if there wasn't this system there available that you could see the atrocities but but not be involved in it and not not have a means of redress I think that would be far more depressing in the long term and I think that and that brings us perhaps back to the to the UK and to the rest of uh, the, the rest, uh, our, our view of human rights, which has, as you were saying at the beginning of our discussion, Adam, has been um, the, there've been some very critical messages coming from the from the UK government in re recent years in relation to human rights in general and human rights systems, um, and that's that's changed. The UK, you know, historically has been a basically a good supporter of these systems, and that's changed in, in well, the UK in set up years. the systems Indeed, in, yeah. in, in the Council yeah. of Europe and the European Convention. The UK was instrumental. Churchill, David Maxwell, Fife, they were there yeah. pushing it. And I don't think, we, I, I, I think it's probably fair to say that without Churchill's support, probably wouldn't have happened or it wouldn't have happened in the form that it, that it happened. And, and that, that support was very, very important. But we've seen uh, in recent years, um, 
not, I mean, not just the UK, but we're from other countries that you would think would be supporters, at some times anyway, from Belgium, Netherlands, Denmark more recently. And it's often around a populist narrative. It's often around uh, issues of migration, immigration, uh, and it's said that these systems are, are you know, denying us that us as politicians the right to do what we want to do. It's sovereignty. It's, it's sovereign. These are sovereignty issues. And and what I what I really would uh, hope to see is a change in the way these things are discussed. And we've spent some time in in uh, in recent years actually talking a little bit to people like Dominic Grieve in the Conservative Party, who's been very good at talking about the wider implications of of the system. We have to look historically. This system is set up in the aftermath of the horrendous atrocities in the Second World War. It was set up to try to have a means of responding to that and to uh, bring Europe together. And we need to, to, to come back to that and not to have a very, very narrow uh, view. We need to remember that the UK is one of you know, 47 countries across Europe, and we need to have this system working, working together and to protect it and cherish it. For Iraq... What do you see the next five years bringing? What is where would be your ideal focus? And you know, what do you think the ch the big challenges across Europe are going to be, human rights wise, that you'd like to try and intervene in? I'm not sure that there's going to be huge change in terms of the issues that you know that we've been talking about, Adam. I mean, the um, the the because partly because some of these issues are so in, ingrained, whether it's uh, human rights violations arising out of conflict. Some of the cases we, we do go back to the early 90s and we're still, here we are, still litigating them. And then issues, uh, some of the issues, um, the, the cases about the violence against women, domestic violence that Joe was talking about, they're, they're, they're pro partly problems of fun fundamental attitudinal problems, cultural problems that will take you know, years, uh, decades, generational change, in part anyway, to change. And so I don't see uh, you know, significant changes uh, in terms of the, of the issues that we're covering. What I, what I would want to see is a, is a, uh, a much more grown-up debate and discussion about these issues here in the UK and, and, and across Europe and, and some uh, much greater respect for the systems that we, we need uh, some greater respect for the systems that we've set up to to uh, to deal with appalling human rights violations that that are absolutely essential, and we need to uh, it, it not, do nothing else other than build them up and make them stronger uh, and and more effective. Um, I'd just note that I think we I've always thought that we have a kind of dual purpose. We we we're. We react to need, um, but then we also try to strategize. So, so in, in terms of forward planning, that always makes it a bit challenging. We, we weren't expecting the South Ossetian conflict, for instance, which took out um, vast swathes of our time when when that conflict arose between Russia and Georgia in two thousand nine, ten, um, eight. Thank you. Yes, time flies. Um, Equally, the crackdown on human rights defenders in Azerbaijan um, was an enormously important piece of work that we were all very, uh, you know, proud and motivated to be involved in. And these things are, are often come out of nowhere. But at the same time, we try very hard to identify issues that, that, that can be tackled. And so, for instance, one we're working on at the moment, we're having a round table about this week, is the fact that in um, all bar one of the states in our target region, as indeed the majority of states across the Council of Europe, um, rape is not consent-based. So the definition of um, rape in, in the majority of these countries um, 
is such that it's perfectly possible to have um, penetrative sex with someone without their consent and it not to be an offence. And that's a hugely problematic issue, as I'm sure anybody would agree. But figuring out how to tackle that and bringing um, lawyers together from the region that have been working on some of these quite horrific um, injustices that have resulted as a result of that legislative um, problem is um, an ongoing process, uh, but also a very exciting one. And I would, I, there was a few areas like that which I would hope to tackle over the next five years um, with the help of our colleagues uh, and in order to create real lasting change. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's Thank been you, really Adam. interesting and I hope that um, people come away seeing that the, the cup is half full and that Eric is doing its best to put that little bit more water in it to um, bring it up to the top thank you Adam thanks very much thanks so much to Philip and Joanna for a really interesting discussion I've been Adam Wagner and this has been the Better Human podcast we are kindly supported by Goldsmiths Law with their pioneering new LLB law undergraduate course taught in London applications are now open to learn more visit gold.ac.uk forward slash law if you want to chip in to help the podcast, this is funded a bit by sponsorship, but mostly by you, the people who listen, um, helping out through our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash better human. And if you can give a couple of pounds a month, if you find this podcast interesting, that would be really helpful. The editor of the podcast is Samantha Bruff. The research producer is Natasha Holcroft-Eames. Thanks so much for all of their hard work in putting this together. And I have been Adam Wagner. Thanks very much and goodbye. Goodbye.